Augmenters. I'm Julie. And I'm Jimmy. And we believe authentic, connected relationships are the key to growing your potential. Today, we are joined by John Fullerton, the founder of Regenerative Economics, talking about how mentoring helps navigate the gray areas in finance and derivatives. So Julie, tell me, how would somebody who grew up on Wall Street in the 1980s approach these subjects? Well, Jimmy, this is Augmenter, so of course we'll focus on company culture and building a commitment to service one generation to the next. Please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast with those closest to you. Welcome, John Fullerton. We are so honored and excited to have you with us today on Augmenters. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you, Julie. We are here, as you know, talking about mentoring. That's what we do on Augmenters. We are a rising tide for mentoring. We help others connect more deeply and we help others really grow to their potential. That's really what we're here to do. And when I had a chance to meet you, hear more about your incredible story and the incredible work that you've done, I feel like you are just an augmenter to us just by sharing your story. And of course, it'll be really exciting and cool to hear about people who have helped you along the way. So tell us about yourself, John. Oh, I love that question. Well, <laughs> now, so we can do like the medium long answer, John, not no, the no, five no. hour yeah, answer. I, I was like going to give you the short answer and then you, okay. can, you can peck <laughs> away at it if you want. But so I, my story is sort of broken into my childhood, my first 20 years of my career and what I've been doing since in the second half of my career. And, you know, my childhood grew up on Long Island, relatively lucky kid, very competitive sports, and in particular in, in sailing, and um, went to college, my second choice college, where, because I didn't get into my first choice, and met my, the woman who's my wife of, I think, 36 years, children. Wow, that's uh, impressive. Two girls, <laughs> two wonderful girls and a wonderful boy, all out of the house, and so I'm a very lucky man. And um, well, John, though, when you were at college, how many times did you beat Ohio State? Oh, football? Well, back in the day when I was at University of Michigan, we beat Ohio State regularly, unlike what's happened to the football team since I left. But I was in the in the oh gosh, what's the quarterback's name? Well, before Tom Brady showed up. And it's interesting, I, I moved to Japan in in the late 80s and um, kind of lost touch with Michigan football. So I don't really follow it anymore. Well, we can pivot to another sport briefly, because I don't know if you know that both Jimmy and I are Tufts jumbos. And I believe sailing is actually the only sport that Tufts, yeah, is, Tufts is, really a, good is a great at. school. I a great sailing school. It was one of the schools on my you short want. list. And, um, I, you know, the truth is I, I had my heart set on going to Yale and Yale sailing team recruited me, but it turned out the admissions team didn't think that was such a hot idea. So I got parked on the wait list and I got kind of pissed off at the whole New England Ivy League thing and, and visited a friend at University of Michigan and, and kind of did the proverbial, I'm out of here to New England. So I didn't end up going to Tufts or maybe we would have, well, we probably wouldn't have known each other because, no, (laughs) because, (laughs) You definitely would have known yeah. Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But uh, yeah, no, but Tufts, even, I don't know if it still does, but back then had a powerhouse sailing team for sure. It's our only D1 sport. Right? Yeah. Every NESCAC school has one division yeah. one sport and Tufts yeah. is sailing. Yeah. Well, that was true back in the day too. So, but anyway, so I, when I got out of school, I went to work at what's now called JP Morgan. At the time, it was a commercial bank called Morgan Guarantee Trust Company. And I was interested in international relations. And I took a course in college where the basic idea was that economics and finance would determine the future course of international relations more than politics would. And that really resonated. And I switched 
switched my major to economics and off I went to the best bank I could get a job at. And it was a fascinating 20 year run roughly during sort of the, the major transformation of finance from a decentralized kind of parochial business, highly, highly regulated and highly separated um, into, you know, the era of globalization and the big universal banks. And JP Morgan was kind of at the forefront of breaking down those regulatory hurdles. And I landed, I found myself in the derivatives business, which was at the forefront of the alchemy of finance, if you will, at the time where we learned for the first time that everything was connected to everything. And a bunch of young whippersnappers were structuring all these fancy transactions that were making the bank a lot of money and making clients a lot of money and and in eliminating all kinds of inefficiencies in the process. And uh, none of us anticipated that it wouldn't end well. But of course, like many technologies, mm -hmm. it ended up getting abused and of course didn't end well. But it was a wonderful run for the second 10 years of my time at, at Morgan. And I sort of got tired of the capital markets and moved into the, the venture capital side of the bank for the last few years of my career there and learned a lot about investing capital, which was a skill that was something I actually wanted to know long term. But Left all that soon after the merger with Chase in 2001, um, because the culture was clearly gone at that time. The culture is what kept a lot of us at the firm. And it, it does actually relate to the mentoring topic uh, we can come back to. But, you know, the, the pressures of deregulation and the competitiveness in the investment banking world at that time, and then coupled with the impact of a massive merger of two very different cultures made the place I grew up in my career pretty much over. And so I left in the spring of 2001 with no plans, but just an instinct it was time to move on. And was that really focused on this need to do something different or, a, you know, that's a huge move to make, right? 20 years on Wall Street and leaving without, without a, a plan. plan. Yeah. 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 My wife thought that same thing at the time. <laughs> um, you know, I... I, I can only describe it as a persistent, it wasn't like a sudden idea. I'd been actually trying to leave for a couple of years. And, you know, Morgan was a very, it was a very comfortable, protective place. And, you know, essentially every time I, I had the itch, you know, I would be given a new job that was exciting and it was sort of a get back to work, John message. And, but with the merger, it kind of changed it. And it was, there was no get back to work. And I just knew I had to I had to leave. I knew I didn't want to be in that firm and I knew I didn't want to look for a similar job in a different firm. That I knew and I knew I couldn't do it. It was a it was an intuition really that I couldn't explain at the time, but I can understand really well now. And fortunately, my wife, I, I was joking, but she was super supportive. And so I, I literally just decided to take a break and, and just sort of process not having a, a career path that I was on and, and allowing myself to find the path I wanted to be on, which sounds crazy. And it's not like I'm totally crazy that the, one of the advantages of a merger is that all of your stock options vest, you walk out the door with a, a good little size bag full of goodies. And so I wasn't wealthy by any standard, certainly today's standard. Well, I was and am wealthy by most of the world standard, but by Wall Street standard, it was a comfortable cushion, but it wasn't anything crazy. And actually one thing about the old Morgan culture is that it wasn't money driven. Most of us stayed there knowing we could leave and make more money, but we stayed because we valued the culture more than the extra 10 or 20 or 30% on our bonus check. John, that's, that's really interesting that you say that because 
when I think of, you know, the eighties or nineties, my brain jumps to like, you know, Michael Lewis's book, you know, Liars yeah. Poker and that it wasn't about the culture that kept people at companies. So were there individuals that, you know, kind of created maybe unlike a college football coaching tree, but like a mentoring kind of tree where there were people who had been at the firm a long time and who really helped advise and, you know, create space for new people to be themselves and therefore add to the culture and feel connected. Yeah. I mean, you know, and this is a great segue. You guys didn't even know this when you invited me on the podcast, but the truth is that Morgan had a culture that was unique on Wall Street and people today don't believe it's possible that it existed, but I could introduce you to dozens of people who would tell you the same story who are, you know, in their 60s and 70s today who grew up in this culture and prided themselves in being part of this culture. So there was it was a badge of honor to carry a JP Morgan business card that said managing director and mm-hmm. and it gave us an identity which of course when you left it behind left you literally yeah. feeling naked. And I I remember one of the first things I did, I guess it was the next fall when I was sort of okay, what am I going to do with myself here? I went and made some business cards because that seemed like what you're supposed to have. And I had nothing to put on it. So I put my Yahoo email address on it and my name. And um, But getting back to the culture, that there's a few old myths, tales that helped define the culture. Brief history, J.P. Morgan founded the firm. Jack Morgan, his son, is the person people think of as J.P. Morgan. He was the guy who famously mm. testified in front of the Pecora hearings after the, the stock market crash in the Great Depression. And, you know, they were they had him there to grill him like you would expect the dominant banker in the era to be grilled. And he famously said... We have made mistakes, but our mistakes were mistakes of judgment, not mistakes of principle. Ooh, that's so interesting. Mistake of judgment. And so the distinction between a judgment error and a principle mistake was fundamental to the culture. And you didn't want to be the guy who got discovered making an error of principle. And it's interesting, the word principle, because in this case, it's L-E, not (laughs) A-L. And another one was J.P. Morgan said, you know, I will never do business with anyone I don't trust for all the gold in Christendom. So trust became a foundational ethic of the of the culture. We were fed these this narrative as a way to make us proud of that culture and committed to that culture and loyal to that culture. And I wonder whether if I were alive, knowing what I know today, whether I would view Jack Morgan's testimony the way I viewed Lloyd Blankfein's testimony after the financial crash, or whether I would actually believe the narrative that I was taught as a young banker at Morgan. But there's another important kind of code that we lived by that was what we called the C1 test. Back in the day, there was always an article in the Section C of the Wall Street Journal, it was sort of a human interest cover story that was usually slanderous, right? Like something, somebody did something really bad and it made it to the cover of C1. And the, the, the spoken and unspoken rule was no matter what you do, you don't want to be the, the topic of the C1 article. So it, we refer to it as the C1 test. And you mean, was that in terms of decisions? Like you're yeah. making a decision, is this going to yeah. end up, us up and, on and, in And C1? the truth is the, the complexity of finance and derivatives in particular, and the ability to use that technology to manipulate accounting, to manipulate cash flows, to embed loans in a derivative product that disguise a financing as a derivative. There were all kinds of gray areas and no obvious 
bright lines because in a way that's hard to explain in a simple way, the complexity of it enabled it to be used in this broad. And yet there were very clear ethical lines that anyone who thought in an ethical way could say, no, that's a line you don't cross. And so the way we describe that as we, and we've had all these formal meetings to review big complex transactions and assess with not just the traders and the marketers doing the deal who had this huge incentive to do it, but people, risk managers and accountants and auditors, and just sort of grown up with wise wisdom holders. We would review these transactions in, in depth and talk about the C1 test, you know, like what's the worst thing that a nasty journalist who wanted to make a story out of this, what's the worst thing they could write about it? And and we would literally decide to do the transaction or not based on does it pass the C1 test? So all of this is to say that the firm was by no means perfect, but it did have this moral code, this ethical code that, that we lived by. And when someone breached it, I'm ne- I never forget, there was a guy who ran our Latin American business, his name was Tony Gebauer, and he breached it and we landed on page C1. And it was just a shock throughout the oh, firm. No. And um, so that's the culture I grew up in. And getting to the topic of mentoring, my first boss, you know, the, the proverbial, your first boss is the most important mentor you're going to have and pick your first boss very carefully. I like that. I don't think we've talked about that before, but it's not. That's my, that's my advice to young people is, is be very thoughtful about who you choose you as your first boss, which is a bit tongue in cheek because you don't usually get to pick your first boss. But um <laughs> But I was very lucky. I had a boss named Tom Kellogg after the training program, which was part of this cultural, you know, we literally had a nine month training program, which was like a mini MBA where they indoctrinated you in the culture as well as taught you accounting and and stuff like that. But uh, that doesn't exist anymore anywhere to my knowledge, which is just shame. In fact, kids getting hired onto Wall Street now, you know, many of them have been hired during the pandemic. They've never even met their boss, much less have any kind of experience like that. But anyway, my my I was interested in getting involved in international project finance because that was, again, going back to college, that was the vehicle to learn about how global finance was going to be this pathway to international relations and, and global development. And project finance was the tool. And of course, the place that project finance happened was in the oil and gas sector. So I put my hand up and said, I want to work in the oil and gas sector. And Tom Kellogg ended up being my first boss. He covered Texas, the oil patch. And um, he and I went through a trial by fire ethical issue. And um, he was just a, a fantastic role model throughout. I worked for him for three years and saw the conflicts, the pressures, and what it meant and looked like to keep your compass clear and not be swayed by it. And um, and honestly, it, it impacted me. I look back today and, and that ethical grounding and integrity are you know, the things that are easily the most important thing in in my life today. Well, I was going to say that you can't uh, have integrity without being gritty, but uh, I'm I'm curious how your... uh, (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. How Julie introduced me to you was about regenerative economics. And I'm almost hearing in a way that the firm you worked at, you know, uh, J.P. Morgan before you know, the merger, they were able to regenerate their culture over time by really strong relationships and, you know, an eye on past yet, you know, a vision of the future and continuing to let people be themselves, but operate within or operate without the C1, you know, being like the standard. Did you feel that that is now really kind of instilled in, you know, your business model these days? That's an interesting and complex question. I I don't think there's a straight answer for it. I could 
ramble for 10 minutes, I think. I think here's here's what I, I would say. I think the, well, first of all, the connection between my current work, this idea of regenerative economics and the old culture of J.P. Morgan, there is a connection there. I, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, but one of the one of the things that pops out of my mind is that the, and this is true, not frankly, just of the old J.P. Morgan, but of Goldman Sachs as well. The business was a relationship-centric business. Because of competitive pressures and desire to maximize shareholder value in the short term, it transitioned to a much more transaction-driven culture. And relationships are central to how living systems thrive. And transactions are not. And so just by moving from a relationship-centric business to a transaction-driven business, it moved away from alignment with how living systems actually work. I can't, you know, these things are complex. There's lots, there's no simple cause and effect. I am certain that shift is part of what caused the the decline of the, the, the contribution of finance to a healthy society. I don't think it's controversial to say that finance today is understood and viewed as a parasite and a destructive force and a potentially catastrophic force. And though it's still important, it's not viewed highly as a contributor to well-being by both sophisticated followers of finance and the man in the street or the person in the street. I don't think that's a controversial statement. I'm sure my banking friends would fight me over it, but but it's just not. I mean, after the financial collapse. I think we'd concur just in the sense that. Yeah, you're, here's two data points. I don't think you guys disagree with that, right? I think we could, we could see room for improvement. There you go. So it must be true since two people agree with it. <laughs> well, I just and I didn't know if Jimmy does. The yeah. crypto thing. I mean, it's just like, are you kidding me? You know, it's it makes the past crimes and malfeasance seem sophisticated and well thought out. I mean, this is just garden variety, you know, amateur, incompetent and unbelievably large scale fraud from what I've been able to understand. I do. I do like how you've shortened it from FTX to just the crypto F. That does sound like <laughs> well, a, I got, I was, a I, bit better. I couldn't think of it as FTX or FX, uh, you know, whatever it is. It'd be like somebody opening a bank and you putting a deposit in the bank and the bank taking your money and going in, going to Las Vegas, like on Monday morning. Yeah. Or buying a house in the Bahamas. It, it wasn't any more complicated than that, apparently. So anyway, my point was, so relationship, like if I were to give a, when I give a talk on regenerative economics, there are eight principles I talk about, the first one being in right relationship. And so, you know, just as circulatory system in our body and our brain need to be in right relationship, if bankers and their clients aren't in right relationship, but rather in an extractive transactional exchange, which is what it is. I mean, companies now hire derivative experts to protect themselves against the derivative specialists on Wall Street. Literally true. Wow. So it's a predatory extractive transactional relationship. And there's no wonder that bad outcomes have resulted from that. But the other thing I would say is that my work in regenerative economics is would be the, the exact same, even if Wall Street were occupied with only Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, and there were no ethical breaches. The more profound aspect of this has nothing to do with ethics at all. John, I loved what you just said. Uh, I mean, of course, so many things, but the transaction versus relationship and how that transformation 
from, of course, finance, but business as a whole, right? How you go from having a banker to having an app. You go from having yeah. a travel agent to having an app. You go from pretty much anything, right? Like a house cleaner, you know, you just yeah. punch an app and somebody shows mm. up and you don't even have to speak to them. You can leave your DoorDash, you know, right at the door. You, you don't to even say have hello. to say hello. Yeah. yeah. And how we've engineered relationships really out of out of a lot of mm-hmm. our lives, both from a you know personal level, but then also a business level. And that's really one of the motivations I think Jimmy and I have had by creating this platform was an opportunity to talk about specifically this relationship, mentoring, but then also how to more broadly really show up for Mm. each other. So we also love really getting down to practical tips, right? Practical ways that people can engage more um, and show up more for Mm. each other. You know, when you think about what you're working on right now and your role, you know, is mentoring part of what you think about? I imagine people reaching out Mm. to you who have heard your content, participated in your platform, understand your apron principles, you know, how does mentoring show up for you these days? So I knew you'd ask me that question. (laughs) (laughs) I think because I probably cornered you and asked you about it. Yeah, no, no. And it's actually, um, it's again, people are going to think that this was sort of staged or something, but this is just, this happens to be true. The first way it shows up is I've found a calling as a teacher. And I would say by an order of magnitude, the fulfillment, personal fulfillment, sharing with, I don't even know what the right word is, student is not the right word, you know, it, it searchers, sharing with fellow searchers, the discoveries I've encountered along the 20 year journey I've been on and seeing their response and their appreciation and their their own personal peace and comfort from having seen this is by far the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Professionally, it's violent. It's just, it's part of the culture that we have created, but but it's just wrong. And and I, you know, I get notes and letters and blah, blah, blah from people in the course. And it it is my bonus. That's my bonus. And boy, it's, it's incomparable to any bonus I ever earned on Wall Street for anything I ever did. And that's the first point. There's a second layer in it. And this is something I'm just kind of growing into, I guess. But, you know, I'm now 62 years old. And my job is to is to work in service of the next generation uh, and the generation after that, rather than to be trying to conquer my own mountain. Like anything that comes with growing older, that's that's a hard one to to accept or to or to actually even process. Like, how could I be that guy? Yeah, as opposed to I'm still conquering my mountain. But there's no question that I through the search that I've been on and the people that I've met, the relationships I've built in this search, I now have a gift I can share with people that I didn't, I never thought of as a gift until I taught the course. And then the the layer below that I was referring to is there are young people who I seem to attract. And that's the only word I can describe for it because they attract. Like it's not, it's like an energy attraction. John, so I'm curious now that when I go through this quick section with you where we do a rapid fire word association with our guests and I'm going to ask you four different words and I'm just curious what jumps to mind first. I think I know what you might say for the second one. But when I say the word mentor, what would you say back? Uh, Wisdom. Wisdom. How about if I say mentee? Rapid. Searcher. Hmm. Searcher. And if I say sponsor? Commercial. And how about if I say coach? Uh, Here's (laughs) an answer. Mentor. (laughs) (laughs) 
And you also answered quite eloquently one of my usual questions, which is how would you kind of define mentoring in 2050? Like if you had to reimagine it. And it seemed like what I heard was breaking apart the patriarchy and making sure that the needed voices come to the top and that it's not the existing power to remain. You know, our understanding of mentor mentorship and that function needs to reflect unique contexts of our time. And so if you came up in 1955 and the context was everyone goes to work for IBM or General Motors, mentor was a very defined, here's how the game works, here's how you behave, here's how you advance in life. And and now we live in a in a moment of transformational change that I in our course I equate the only thing I can equate it to is the shift from the medieval era to the modern era. And mm. and it's probably bigger than that shift. So what does mentorship mean in that context of a transformation like that is totally different than being within the modern age where tomorrow is going to be like yesterday. So I, I don't, and, the, and the, the shift out of patriarchy is one aspect of that, but by no means the the only piece of it. And so I think, I think mentorship today and certainly in 1950 has much more to do around well it's interesting i had a coach i haven't i haven't worked with her in a while she asked me a very important question maybe five years ago and she said who do you want to be when you're 80 and i think and at the time she asked the question it was a 25 year future period so i literally developed a 25 year plan and the person i want to be when i'm 80 is an elder so i think mentorship is going to be more about wisdom in the future make sense of this profound shift than it is about knowledge that it might have been in the past about a system that is continuing on as it's been. That's a phenomenal question. That's a phenomenal question. What do you want to be when you're 80? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. That's a coach kind of question. Yeah, that is a great coach kind of question. Sometimes we take these and go yeah. away and do a little mini episode, deep dive on it. But that that is a phenomenal question because I think that really goes back to, you know, setting your roadmap, yeah. right? Like there's sort of like the five-year, you know, I want to achieve this, et cetera, et cetera. But then how do I like, what do I really want to be, you know, to others at, at this at this transformative? Well, but that wasn't the question that, you know, it didn't need to be to others. That's a choice. You know, I could have said yeah, yeah. I want to be a billionaire, you know. Wow, so much. We could go on probably forever. John, I do have one last kind of question for you. And again, it is kind of brings us a bit, a bit tactical, but people listening to this podcast, they're looking up, you know, the work that you do and they're inspired. What would be like a great next step? I think for somebody who is hearing what we're talking about today and feeling like recognized, right? They're getting that this is, these changes mm -hmm. are, are a challenge. What would be, what would you recommend be a next step for them? I say this with complete humility and the experience people People are having in the course is profound and the the feedback is there's some of it on the website but you know a senior executive from patagonia who's not new to sustainability wrote a note saying thank you this was great blah 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 i will never see the world nor my role in it the same way again so if that inspires you and intrigues you another young guy said something to the effect of i thought i was coming to get answers and you've totally screwed up my whole world view so it, this is not a, a course for the meek and timid but if you're if you're sitting there thinking that the 
the world's gotten crazy and you can't make sense of it, but there must be some sense to make of it and some dots to connect and that it's that what's happening is explainable and part of a de- a journey to some destination that is not horrible. Come join the community. It's more about the community that you'll join than John's lectures. And there's, there's 20 thought leaders that are part of it. There's now 600 people that have gone through it from 40 countries and they're all continuing connecting and they they have this feeling of you know i'm not alone in what i was thinking and i'm not crazy um so that would be my best advice and we'd welcome you there and and it's on our website kavalinstitute.org sign up quick there's already 250 people signed up for the march cohort uh we may we may cap it i don't know pretty intense but it's it's certainly manageable wow john this was so amazing we are so honored that you came to talk to us today we are you know we believe so deeply in the power of relationships so to know that that is you know one of the core principles and how these deep relationships and people showing up and caring for each Mm. other as humans how important that is so you know we're we're here to be helpful in any way we can um just from from that aspect and you know again we just really appreciate you being here um and sharing your stories with us it's my pleasure i couldn't agree more about relationships in fact i'll plug someone else's course that you all will find fascinating there's a woman named nora bateson who's developed a concept called warm data warm data is essentially the information that exists in the relationships rather than the hard data which is the relationship is the information that exists between the parts is one way to think about it and her her study of living system science and her you know, her father, Gregory Bateson, is one of the giants in living system science, and she's inherited that DNA and, and that gene and has taken his understanding and, and moved it much further. And so your comment about the importance of relationships, all I would say is that A, that's true, and B, it's way more profound and deep than any of us can imagine. And uh, folks that want to explore that, Google Warm Data and sign up for Nora's class. I haven't taken the full class yet. We actually offer a workshop of it, a mini workshop in our course, mostly because of how fundamental that work is to our work. I love it. In the same vein, John, have you done much research in regenerative farming? Uh, Martin Ping's a good friend. I discovered this holistic framework through my work with the Savory Institute and a guy named Alan Savory, which is essentially regenerative agriculture on large landscape, ranch scale landscapes. Absolutely. the I don't know if I'd say the foundation. I think the foundation of this is more spiritual, but the connection between humans and the land is so fundamental that permaculture, regenerative agriculture, holistic grazing, that is, that is where I, that's the doorway I entered this through. And in my work with Savory, I began to think, well, if this can work in the system called a ranch, why can't it be expanded to the system called the global economy? And there you get back to fractals. The patterns repeat. (laughs) Uh, I have a saying, every snowflake is unique, but every snowflake looks like a snowflake. So the principles, Mm. first principles are fundamental. They exist in every living system, whether it's a cell of a human being or a mouse, or literally, according to the cosmologists, the entire cosmos and everything in between. Mm. So ranching, wow. regenerative ag, it's all its all the same story. Have you tried the TikTok app where it forces you to draw on your phone and it automatically makes a snowflake by then creating, you know, a set of, you know, effectively four pieces of symmetry from whatever you draw and it reinforces the principle that any symmetry is beauty in the human No, mind. I haven't. In fact, I've resisted the TikTok technology entirely. It's nowhere near my phone. <laughs>
which goes which it, goes it, full it, circle. Well past yeah, Slack. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm not even on Slack. <laughs> a whole nother, whole nother level. No, it's a whole nother level. John, thank you so much. We hope this episode was brief yet bright, and now it's time to read us out. And remember, we are here because real relationships have the power to transform organizations and build dynamic communities. Go ahead, Jimmy. Absolutely. Augmenters supports mentoring that matters. Visit our website for the best interactive mentoring content at augmenters.us. Share our podcast with someone you care about, someone who needs a new mentoring relationship in their life pronto. We welcome questions and suggestions via email. Hi at augmenters.us or via social media with our handle at augmentershq. Shout out to our producers, Erlen Cato. Thank you. Augmenters out. See ya.